so good to see you today. Uh, it's been a nine-week-long series, and today we come to the end of it. And it has been our prayer that in this series, you have been encouraged to get to, to know Jesus through the book of Revelation. That you get inspired in such a way that whatever you find in Scripture, in your daily devotions, you can see that Jesus is pictured and painted through those words. It has been our prayer that today, more than ever, the hope of Jesus' return is more alive than any other time. So today as we come into the last message of this series that we titled Worthy, I'd like to share with you uh, a sad report that I read on the Washington Post a few weeks ago. And it reads, 10,000 people died in the past year while they're stuck in a backlog of judges' disability cases. 10,000 people, while they were fighting their case for insurance companies to pay them, they died in the process of waiting. That was exactly my reaction when I read this article. That there's obviously injustice in the world. And in the process of waiting for a judgment, people are dying. Because their case is not yet resolved. Today we come to a study on the last of the seven seals in the book of Revelation. And this seal is when the wait is over. This seal is open and the judgment is proclaimed. This seal is open and suffering is no more. This seal is opening and injustices will not occur ever again. So instead of this seal to be a dreadful thing that will happen, should be the joyous hope that the dreadful things will no longer happen. Let's go to it. Revelation chapter 8 verse 1. It's right there in your notes. And he reads, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. I think that this is a text that mothers with multiple children have on the refrigerator. There was silence for half an hour. Now there is a contrast between what happens in the previous six seals and what's happening during the seventh seal. Because see, during the first four seals, John hears and sees what's happening with the writers. With the fifth and the sixth, John only hears. But now, he doesn't hear, he doesn't see. All he knows is that there is silence in heaven. And that is the question that this morning we'll have to answer. What does this silence mean? What does this silence mean in the prophetic perspective of Revelation? And what does this silence mean to us as those who await for the fulfillment of the seventh seal? Let me share with you a, a, a few of the possibilities that, that people much wiser than, than, than I have come to realize. 
one of those possibilities is that this God's silence is as God is saying, okay, it's done. And he uses the gavel and the heavenly cord to strike the bench. And now there's silence. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that it's the silence right before God recreates the broken creation. That's another possibility. Another possibility is that it's the silence of a stunt universe. Now that God has completed the judgment and is watching the destruction of the wicked. Another possibility is the silence of a courtroom or the place when a will is about to be read because everyone is getting what is coming to them. And who is making noise when a will is being read, right? Another possibility is that heaven is emptied. All these are, are honestly true, honestly possible, honestly scenes where silence can occur in heaven. Because all these scenes are in the context of what is happening during these seven seals. But we have observed that there is an agreement on this silence appearing more true in two of these frameworks. So let's see what the scripture tells us. The first one, and it's of a spiritual lesson, is that this silence is the fulfillment of justice. This silence is a fulfillment of justice. In the book of Isaiah, and if you remember, during this series, we've been exploring the Old Testament because as John went through the vision of these seven seals, it's been the Old Testament, the grounds from which he's been building the context of his vision. And the language that we find in the book of Revelation is mostly found in the Old Testament. John, as a Jewish man, he knew perfectly well the Old time Scriptures or the Old Testament Scriptures that he knew as the Scriptures, as the Word of God. John did not have the New Testament as we have it today. In fact, in fact he is writing the New Testament. So what we have here is that the Old Testament is the place from which John draws, draws out his uh, uh, language to describe what he sees in the book of Revelation. So Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1 and 2 is there in your notes. It says, for Zion's sake. Now, what's a word for Zion? The people of God, the city of God. It's always in relationship to the, to, to the group on the place that God is longing to have his people at. So he says, from Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. So if he's keeping silent... That means that there's a period of silence. Yes, you guessed it. I will not keep silent for Jerusalem's sake. I will not remain quiet. So if he's quiet, it's because there is 
Silence, you guessed it again. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Verse 2, this is important. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Now this is a powerful text. Because it is talking about not just a resurgence of a kingdom, but it's also speaking of a revindication. In other words, a reputation, a, a name that at one point had been lost. And this is the moment where that name comes back to its glory, to its original purpose and meaning. There are two things where reputation and history and events have caused to lose its name, meaning, and reputation. One of them, because of sin, has been us, the people of God. From the moment when Adam conceded the command of this planet to the devil, at the moment of the fall in Genesis 3, we as the people of God lost our reputation, lost our meaning, lost our purpose. On the other hand, from day one, even before the fall of man, the devil has been trying to make the name of God less than what it is. That was the specific and unique Reason why angels from heaven decided to follow the devil. Because the devil was attacking the name of God. So at the end of earth's history, not only us as the people of God will be vindicated, but also the name of God. And that will lead us. To understand the stages of the judgment. Because in all honesty, we are not judged. Let me explain this to you. Have you ever been to a courtroom and the person who is on trial says, Well, the reality is that I don't want to be, I choose not to be guilty. Have you ever seen that before? No, that does not happen, right? The person who is on trial never chooses if wants to be guilty or not. It's the jury or the judge that decides that. But in the universal judgment from, of God, we choose to be guilty or not. Let me explain that to you. When Jesus died on the cross, we choose at that, from that moment on... What is going to be the side of the judgment that we're going to be part of? If we choose Christ as our Savior, and we choose the power of the cross to be upon us, we choose to not be guilty. But if I choose not to accept the power of Jesus' and salvation through the cross, guess what? I choose to be guilty. Now, but that does not mean... That the name of God 
is vindicated before the universe. There has to be a process of a trial for the name of God to be revindicated. Let me explain this to you in this way. The history that we've been talking about in Revelation and the process of revindication of God before the universe begins at the cross. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, something interesting happened. Because when Adam and Eve ate from the tree that they were forbidden to eat, God could react it in several ways. One of those ways could have been, well, I didn't see anything. So the devil could have said, hey, they ate from the tree. You told them to not to eat. And God would have said, well, I didn't see it. Sorry. I missed it. But then the devil could have said, see, you're a liar because you don't know everything. Another thing that could have happened is that God, when Adam and Eve ate from the, from the tree, he could have said, okay, guys, I told you, if you eat from that tree, you will die. Bzzz. But then the devil would have said, you know what, God, you're not that loving God and merciful God that you so claim to be. So because God couldn't do that, what God did is that you guys ate for the tree. So I am going to die in your place. And because I am going to die in your place, and I love you so much, I will never force you to be on my side. But I will give you all the evidences for you to trust me and to accept my salvation. But it is up to you if you want to love me back or not. So at the moment when Jesus died on the cross was the greatest evidence before the universe that God was a loving God and that he was giving every single one of the people on earth a chance to be saved. Now, at that moment begins what we call today the Christian era. That is when we begin to count A.D. and B.C., the difference. A.D. stands for Anno Domini, which means the day of our Lord in Latin. And by day of, uh, of our Lord, that means day of our Lord, I'm sorry, year of our Lord, that means the Lord Jesus. So the Christian era begins at the moment of the cross. The Christian era will end with the second coming. There will be no need to be Christian anymore because we'll be with Christ. We'll be one with Him. We'll no longer be little Christ, Christians, as He was named in the Bible, Antioch, for the first time, but we'll be one with Christ. After that, when we get to heaven, all the redeemed will have a period of time that in the scriptures, in Revelation 20, it's referred as the millennium. And as we spoke about this in a previous message, the millennium is going to be the time when all the questions that we have today of justice and injustice, of things that happen, why God is, do you allow this to happen? Why do little babies that don't have a choice are being killed in their mother's womb? 
Yes, I went there. Why are you allowing innocent people to die? Why, if I prayed so much for my mom, she was not healed? Why? 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 And during this time, not specifically a thousand years, but we call it the millennium, during this time is going to be long enough for every single one of our questions. Every single one of our questions to be answered. The millennium will end with the second resurrection. And now the second resurrection is when all those who, when Jesus came for the second time, did not resurrect. You know who are those? Those who were in the other team. Those who did not choose Jesus to be their savior. So God in his mercy would allow them to live again. Not to give them another chance of redemption for themselves. But to give them another chance to see how many times God called them out of their lostness to be saved. And that is the beginning of eternity. But there's two things that we need to understand. The Christian era is the time where the judgment of God begins. It's towards the end of the Christian era that the judgment that John is watching in the seven seals begins. Why did the judgment have to begin during the Christian era? Why didn't the judgment have to could, he could begin before Jesus died, right? But if that had happened, if the judgment would begin before Jesus died, then God would not have a, an argument to say, see, I love you so much, I'm giving you this chance. So in order for God to have that argument, Jesus had to have already died. So that the greatest argument of love would have been present as part of the judgment. Are you with me? We understand that this judgment, it's only watched by one group of people, by one group of creatures, by one group of individuals. Because see, us today, we're not really watching it. Obviously, people who die before us are not watching it. So who is watching it? This is, this part of the judgment, the first part of the judgment is being watched by the unfallen heavenly creatures. Remember that when the devil confused the angels in heaven, how many were confused? One third. So there are, if my math is correct, two thirds of angels who are in heaven. And all the unfallen creatures that God has made, they are watching what is developing on earth. In fact... It is written that we are an open book before the universe. The unfallen creatures are watching what is developing on earth because God is displaying before them his love, grace, and righteousness. When the character of God is completely de demonstrated before them, that is when their questions are over. And that is the moment that the second coming occurs. 
Did I tell you what the millennium is about? It's about our questions, right? But that is the moment that once the second coming occurs, that the redeemed will be asking the questions. We'll be asking God. And now when we are asking our questions and our questions are being answered, the character of God is being vindicated or revindicated before us. His true love, grace, mercy, righteousness, all his attributes are being displayed before us during this period of time. So when all our questions are being answered and the character of God now is displayed with the unfallen and with the, the redeemed, the second resurrection occurs. Because there's one group of individuals who haven't seen the judgment yet. Who's that? The unredeemed. When the unredeemed come to life again, God will display before them his character. The moments when he called them, his love, his mercy towards them. And once they realize that, yep, we blew it. God, you've been the loving God that you claim to be. We deserve what is coming to us. Then what will occur is that dreadful event that we call the second death. So at this moment, the unfallen, the redeemed, and the unredeemed, all of them will have clear that God is love. That God is righteous. That God is merciful. Let's read Isaiah one more time. Verse 2. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. Does that make sense now? It's not only talking about us. It's talking about God himself. The key is that his name Zion, the place where God dwells. Let's go back to the silence part. Silence. Silence, we, we said, that is also an opportunity for recreation. Recreation from God. But let's... Move on in the text a little bit, right there in Revelation 8, verse 1. And it says that silence lasts for how long? Half an hour. Half an hour. Half an hour is an interesting term. In fact, it's very unique for Revelation because it does not appear anywhere else. It, there's no reference in the Old Testament. There's no reference in the New Testament. It does not appear anywhere else in the Bible, this half an hour of silence. Or half an hour. Period. A day, a year, a season, a times. They all appear multiple times so we know what they mean because we have the references of the Old Testament and the context of the New Testament. But half an hour is very unique. So that has created different questions in the minds of theologians. So let's explore one of the possible things. We know one thing. That is silence, this half an hour of silence occurs where? In heaven. In heaven. And extends kind of to earth. But occurs in heaven. Every other time that 
time is given and the scriptures, specifically in Revelation, has to do with events happening on earth. But this event is happening in heaven. And it's kind of a weird thing because in heaven there's no time. Let me explain that to you in case you just woke up. Earth, we're constrained by time. So when God speaks about events happening on earth, using time is very logical. Because we're constrained by time. We measure our age in years. Our months in days. But in heaven, there is no time. So by using this unique measure of time, it raises a question. Now, it's funny because you know what half an hour means in Greek? Half an hour. So it was so weird, right? So, so, so there, that does not help us. So, so let's do some math. Are you ready for some math? Okay, let's talk about prophetic interpretation. Because in the Bible, we know one thing. We know one thing for sure because it's everywhere. And, and it applies to all prophetic, uh, uh, apocalyptic prophecy. And that is the principle that one day, it's equal to one year. So when in prophecy it says for two days, that means that in reality it will be Two years. So we're all clear on that one. It's very clear. It's very simple. That applies in all uh, 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 apocalyptic prophecy. Now, if that is the case, a prophetic day will have 24 prophetic hours. Are you with me? Because we're talking about half an hour, right? So we have to dilute it to that measure of time. Now, if that is the case... Every time, every time that we talk about years in prophetic years, when it's mentioned a year or a time, we use the Jewish calendar because it's Jewish writing. What does that mean? Our years today have how many days? 365. And a couple of minutes because of the leap year that we have and we had another day. But it's 365. That is the Roman calendar number of days. The scriptures were not written with the Roman calendar. They were written with the Jewish calendar. And the Jewish calendar has 360 days. So our calculations need to be with 360 days. Now, 360 days divided by 24 hours each day, that's equal to 15 days an hour. That's not speed, by the way. 15 days an hour means that for every prophetic hour is equivalent of 15 days. Right? With me? Okay, some of you are going, yeah. Some of you are going like, huh? <laughs> okay, let me go back. For every prophetic hour is equivalent of 15 days. Now, but we're dealing now with, a, with an hour, we're dealing with half an hour. So half an hour with the equivalent of 7.5 days. So it's roughly a week. So that would mean that the silence in heaven would be roughly 
for one week. Let me ask you a question. Where in the scripture do we find God, God, not God, that's a tribe, God acting at the end of a week? Creation. Creation. Now, let's look at the text on Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. You have it in your notes. Now the earth was formless and empty. So that means that there was a lot of noise. No, there is silence. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The presence of God is there before creation. However, the earth is empty. There's silence. At the beginning of the world's history, there's silence before God creates. This silence could be that God is about to recreate what once lost its meaning and purpose. According to the Jewish scripture, silence is a gift from God. And this is not biblical. This is not, not from the scripture only, but also for the tradition and the extra-biblical writings of, of the Jewish. Silence in the Jewish tradition was the moment before God did something new. Silence is a symbol of recreation of God at the end of the world's history. And according to, to, to this idea, silence is the expectation that God is going to do something new. In fact, all new again. So silence is the moment before God recycles. Now for us, this silence of God happens every time we pray. Because when we pray, when we say amen, there is silence. And that is the silence that we are expecting that at the end of that silence, God is going to act. God is going to do something. God is going to create something. God is going to form something. God is going to change something. Because that is what prayer is about. To change your heart, to change your mind, to act in our lives, to act with our family members, to change our bodies, to change our, our, our character, to change our thinking, to change anything. So the moment after prayer, that silence is the time right before God is going to do something new. And that is what the Jewish scriptures speak of. That that silence is the moment right before recreates. Now, silence also could be the beginning of eternal life with Jesus. According to our Adventist tradition, 
this week silence, this period of silence that is approximately a week, is the time from the moment that Jesus and his angels leave heaven and come down to earth on the second coming. So if they come down to earth on the second coming, because the scripture says that God, that Jesus will come with who? With his angels. So heaven will be empty. If that is the case, this silence is the calm right after the storm of the chaos caused by the second coming of Jesus. The writers of the first four seals are done with their work. The sealing of the, of the faithful has been completed. The wings that were held by the angels before causing the destruction of the last plagues has been done. And the great tribulation is over. The prophet Zechariah writes in chapter 2 verse 10. Shout and be glad, daughter of Zion, for I am coming. I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that I am the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Verse 12, this is an important one. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This type of prophecy is what Israel received every time in the Old Testament from the Old Testament prophets, especially the minor prophets. The minor prophets had a problem. And that is that they were ministering, they were preaching to a people who did not want to have anything to do with God. The minor prophets give messages to those people, to a divided Israel, to an idolatrous Israel, to an Israel that enjoyed more the pagan worship than the worship of God, to an Israel where the temple had been destroyed, when the Ark of the Covenant was no longer there, where the presence of God was not abiding in the middle of the camp anymore, they're preaching to an Israel where their only hope is that one day things will be restored. I think that the message of the minor prophets like Zechariah are so applicable to our days now. Because we live in times like that. We live in times where the presence of God in a lot of people's lives is gone. We live in times where the presence of God has departed in such a way that we don't really care to see God anymore. And like the Israel of those times, the practices and traditions have become more important than a personal relationship with God. However, this message is very similar to what, what is happening with the seventh seal. You see, you all seen this symbol. You all seen it. And if if God were to be in, into a business, it would be the business of recycling. 
But he not only recycles glass and plastic and metal, he recycles the whole planet. When we read John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the... And you know that's what's interesting about that word is that when he talks about world, it's not just the planet. That would be the geos. But he's talking about the cosmos. He's talking about the people. That is you and I and everyone who's been alive. Because everyone who's been alive now have a chance to be part of this recycling business of God. But everything begins at the cross. It is the cross, the force that God uses to start his recycling business. Without the cross, there would be no reformation. Without the cross, there would be no transformation. Without the cross, there would be no revindication. And without the cross, there would be no salvation. So it is the cross, the force that moves God and people to come together as one so that one day all those who are united by the cross will be one with God. That is why Jesus is worthy. Because he is the only one who could do that. He is the son of God who make us all sons of God. He is the redeemer that can make us all redeemed. Because he is the only one that is worthy.